As we continue our way through the book of Mark, let me just read for us our passage this morning. Again, Mark 12, starting at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who reigns over all things. We thank you that by your Spirit you have given us your word. We thank you that your word is true, uh, that it is sure, that it is clear, it is authoritative, and it is necessary for us. We pray, Lord, that you would give clarity this morning, that you would help my mind to be clear, my heart to be yours, my mouth to speak truth. I pray you would give our hearts clarity by your Spirit. I pray you would help us, Lord, to be sanctified by your Word. We thank you. We ask all this knowing it is your will. We pray you would let your will be done. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. As we continue through the book of Mark, I just want to remind you the context. Mark is a, uh, one of the four Gospels, one of the three synoptic Gospels. And in the book of Mark, we see the life of Jesus declaring, uh, really, the, the bulk of Mark is his ministry. Three years of his life as he declared the kingdom of God was at hand and that man must repent and place their hope in God. As Jesus went on to do this. There were many times there were critics coming to him, as we've described them in the book of Mark. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Herodians, and then Rome in general will become the critic or the enemy of Christ. Uh, but this, in the last week of his life, as Christ is preparing for the cross... He is preparing with his men. He is uh, going to be having the Passover meal with them and then will be the Passover lamb crucified and three days to rise again. In this last week, Christ is in Jerusalem. He is teaching and the leaders of Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees are ever increasingly frustrated by him and looking to have him killed. In just the last few weeks, we've looked at their hypocrisy uh, in approaching him. They come to him in words like, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Which is true of Christ. That he rightly teaches the way of God. That he's not worried about the opinions of men, but he teaches the word of God. He makes clear the truth. And though they speak truly of him, they do not speak truly. They speak with hypocrisy, or as we see this week with the scribes in pretense, an attempt to make something that is not the case appear true. And Jesus knows this. We, we saw this in the parable of the unworthy tenants as Jesus declares their hearts to them that they are seeking to kill the Son. And they say they are cut with that. They know he's speaking of them. They've tried to challenge his authority in chapter 11, verses 27 through the beginning of chapter 12. They challenged him on should they pay taxes or not, trying to challenge him politically that he might say something that would get him in trouble. They challenged him on the resurrection, trying to challenge him doctrinally to get him to say things that people would reject. And they've challenged him on what is the law or the greatest of commandments. 
And in all of these cases, as Christ is challenged, he speaks what they say in pretense he does in truth. He teaches the word of God. He is not concerned about the false opinions of man, but he teaches truth to his people. And in doing so, he makes clear the person of God and continues to shut their mouths. We saw at the end of last week that Jesus had silenced them, that they had nothing else to say to him. They could not trap him in his words. So they would, and and we will see as Mark continues, pursue other means. But as they come to Christ, they don't look for answers. They just look to show themselves righteous. They look to trap Him. They're not coming to Christ humbled, but seeking to humble Him, to exalt themselves. And Jesus comes to them again and again, clearly giving the truth in hopes that the people of God will be fed in that. His disciples will hear the truth, though they struggle to understand, and His enemies will be silenced. And that is the case. And now we see as they have come and they have questioned Christ and they have put with pretense before Christ all these things about Him, uh, Christ comes to them now with a pointed question. You see it in the beginning of Mark 12, 35. Mark 12, 35. And Jesus taught in the temple. And He said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared... The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Christ comes to them with a question. His appointed question about the interpretation of the scribes. He's asking, how how is it that the scribes see rightly that the Messiah, the Christ, the coming anointed, will be the son of David. But what about Psalm 110? When David, in the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord. I want you to notice first Christ's statement about the authority of Scripture. You might move quickly to just what he states about Scripture, but listen to what he states from Scripture, rather. But listen to what he states about Scripture. He says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. What is Christ's doctrine of the Word of God? It's the very doctrine in which we studied just a few months ago in Peter, that men, as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit, declared the Word of God. We see just in Christ's statement, His belief that the Psalms were penned by David as the author, and that the true author is the Holy Spirit. Christ's theology of the Word of God is that, yes, it was written by David, not another author, not someone later, and that David, when he wrote, was writing in the Holy Spirit. The very doctrine that is later declared and proclaimed in First Peter or Second Peter, rather, that we looked at, Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen, that the word of God is, or the word rather, is breathed out by God, as men write. He also now is is writing to clarify what what is the authority. Where do the scribes get their authority? Why would the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? Well, the scribes, the lawyers, those who would go to the law, and his question to them is, what about this verse? How would this verse change their theology? He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And then what is Christ's observation of this text. He says, David himself calls him Lord. So how is it that he is his son? What what is Christ trying to get at here? What's his intention? Remember, they're blaspheming Christ because Christ says he is the son of God. They think that Christ is committing blasphemy because he is declaring to be the very son of God. 
He's declaring to be God incarnate. You might think that Christ is just trying to have theological debate with them, uh, but he is asking a pointed question that should point them to the very truth which he is proclaiming. The very truth which is causing them to want to crucify him. The very truth in which they take and they say this is the reason we should kill him. He declares to be the Son of God. And Christ points them to this psalm taken by all as a messianic psalm. It is a psalm proclaiming the future Christ. And what does David say about this future Christ? He says, The Lord, God, Yahweh, the covenant name of God in the Greek, or rather in the Hebrew, said to my Lord. And Christ says, If this son of David is just a son of David, why does he call him Lord? I think there's another interesting uh, biblical truth here is Christ declares this. He, he declares Kyrios, Lord, in the Greek twice. He says, Lord, Lord. Uh, there are many now, and in, in, in translations I love, that feel like we must translate all of the words in the Old Testament, like Yahweh needs to be written as Yahweh. Uh, but yet here Christ does not take the word Yahweh and say Yahweh. He says in the language of the time, Lord, said to my Lord, Kyrios. That's just a for the little theology nerds. But <clears throat> as he declares this, what is he declaring? That God says to the future Messiah, Lord, Master. So God says to the one who will come, you are the Lord. David calls him Lord. The Lord said to my Lord. God said to my Master. And so he says, if he is merely a son of David, why would David call him Master? Now, I could just leave you with that tension for you to figure out, because that's what Jesus does to them, right? If we want to be fully faithful to the text, then we just move on. But thank God, uh, the text alone here is not the only text we have. Romans 1 declares this very truth, that He is the Son of David, and that He is the Son of God. That David calls Him Lord, because He is not just a descendant of David in the flesh, but He is... God in the flesh. And how is this known? How is it known that Christ is not just born in the line of David? That's known to all of them. His mother was Mary. His stepdad was Joseph. They are both from the line of David. So he's born of David in the flesh. The scribes aren't denying that. But he is also born of the Father, born of the Spirit. God incarnate. And Romans 1, 1 through 4 declares this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. Concerning the Son of God. And what does he say of this Son of God? Romans 1, verse 3, he says, "...who was descended from David according to the flesh." and declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. As Jesus asks them this question, what will happen in just a matter of days is He will rise from the dead. And hopefully, it is my hope, and I'm sure it was Christ's hope, if not His very intention in this statement, that those scribes would then see, yes, he is David's son according to the flesh, but this man declares to be the son of God. He's a blasphemer. But just a matter of days later, what would Christ do? He would rise from the dead. And he would be declared to be the son of God according to the power of the Holy Spirit in his resurrection. The Lord says to David's Lord, David's Master, David's King, David's Savior, David's Messiah. 
to sit at his right hand when it is finished. He declared in power through his resurrection and declared in the promise through Psalm 110, the most quoted of the Old Testament and often used by the apostles to declare the deity of Christ. Known throughout the Jewish history as a messianic psalm and declared by the apostles as a declaration of Christ's deity, declared here first by Christ that he is divine. And while he is risen and at the right hand of the Father now, he has been declared, and hopefully those scribes saw, as many Pharisees did, as we've talked about before, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and this guy named Saul, who later becomes Paul, all Pharisees that know the reality that he is not just the son of David, but the Lord of David, declared to be so through the resurrection. And that he then, now reigns from high, seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus goes on to finish all of Psalm 1, or rather Psalm 110, verse 1, says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now Christ doesn't go on to declare what that means. He just is making the statement for them to consider the fact that Jesus is Lord. But because Jesus is Lord, that has huge significance for us. Why is He at the right hand of the Father? He's at the right hand of the Father because He has finished the sacrifice in which He promised. He has paid the penalty of sin. Hebrews 10 declares it this way, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Christ... When he had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The Christ, after he made a single offering, is ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father, Waiting for what? Until the end. While he quotes Psalm 110 at the beginning, he is waiting for Psalm 10, verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand, and He will shatter kings on the day of His wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That he will come, and he will come to destroy. He will come to pour his wrath out on mankind. He will come to execute judgment. He has ascended to the Father, and he is, as we are, waiting. Until he returns to make his enemies his footstool. There's great hope for us in that. Notice as we take communion every week, we proclaim the Lord's death until He returns. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And when He comes, He will return in victory. He will proclaim He has accomplished His reign over all things. He will shatter kings. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to declare that. What will he do when he returns? 1 Corinthians 15, 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, when Christ comes, those who belong to him, and then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of the Father, rather, to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ goes on to declare when he will defeat death. In, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says in verse 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, What will happen when Christ returns and all mankind is risen from the dead? What is the enemy that will be defeated after he crushes all the kings of earth? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, because when he comes, just as death has been defeated in Christ, the final enemy, death, will be defeated. It says, when he returns and immortality is given to all man, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because He is the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior, and fulfilled the promise of the coming Messiah, He will return and fulfill all the promises of the Messiah. That He will crush the kings of earth. That He will reign from His throne for eternity. He will reign forever. And while now we see sin defeated, while now we are, as Hebrews said, that He for one time perfected all those who are being sanctified, perfected, or as Ephesians says, that He has purposed to make you holy and blameless before Him. As we wait in communion now, as often as we eat and as often as we drink, we proclaim Christ's death. Why? Because in His death, sin was defeated. In His death, unrighteousness, hypocrisy, your rebellion, your adultery, your greed, your slander, your abusiveness toward neighbor, your deceitfulness, your unfaithfulness, your unrighteousness, your drunkenness, all defeated in Christ. No longer standing against you. You are perfected before God. He stands at the right hand of the Father because sin has been defeated. And He waits because He is gracious because He is patient, because He is forbearing, because He is faithful, because all who are His will be called, and then He will return. And so then, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, then your labor, your work, is not in vain. Why is it not in vain? Because death will be defeated. Because He will return. Because in patience He is waiting and we wait for Him as those who are perfected and are being sanctified in Him. And as we labor for Him, as we honor Him, as we live for Him, it is not in vain. Because He will have victory. Because the victory is His, not ours. Because He is our Lord our Messiah, our Savior. He has paid our penalty. And so therefore, we rejoice in His death and His resurrection. But we proclaim His death. Why? Because we await His return. And as we await, we need the ever-present reminder that He has perfected those who He is sanctifying. But notice who's doing the work in all of that. It's not He has perfected those who are seeking to be sanctified. It's not that He has perfected those who by their own works make themselves holy. It's He has perfected those whom He is sanctifying. He is making them holy. They are being sanctified by Him. And so what then do we do? We proclaim His death. We proclaim that our righteousness is in Him alone. We stand with Paul and we say, I boast in nothing except the cross of Christ. That my message is Christ. My only hope is Christ. 
We do not live in pretense or hypocrisy and hear that this son of David is the Messiah, the Savior who came to pay for our sin and then think, I better really clean up my act. I better really find out what impresses people and do that. We do not live in pretense. We live now in victory. Our labor, our pursuit of Christ is not in vain because we are not trying to prove anything to anyone. We are trying to persuade all that their only hope is Christ. We are not trying to make anyone think that we are holy. We are completely dependent upon Christ who makes us holy that declares to the world. But the scribes did not see this. Why does Jesus proclaim to the scribes in Mark 12? You need to see that the son of David is the son of God. Because the scribes were self-righteous pretenders. The scribes lived in pretense. The scribes did not believe that God would pay for their sin. They believed that they would present themselves as holy. Christian, it is important for you to hear Jesus' warning to the scribes. Because as He declares to them, the Lord is not just the Son of David. He is the Son of God. And as He declared before their eyes, resurrected, that He is the Son of God in power and the payment of sin. I pray that many scribes like Joseph of Arimathea and Zacchaeus. Nope. Zechariah. No. Who came to Him at night? Nicodemus. Didn't even start with a Z. And ends kind of like a Z, right? Anyway. Zachariah saved too, but he wasn't a Pharisee. So is Christ... I don't even know where I was now. Let's go back. The scribes, looking for their own righteousness, and before Christ, as they would find it in themselves, hopefully at Christ's return, His resurrection, uh, they will be found holy and righteous because of His grace. But He warns them, Beware of the scribes. Matthew says it even more directly. He says that the scribes and the Pharisees teach from the law of Moses, and you should hear what they say, but do not do what they do, because they do not practice what they preach. They are liars. They are self-righteous, self-exalting. Why? Because they don't look for their holiness in God. They look to present it themselves. They look to say, I am holy because of me. How do they do so? What do they take their pleasure in? Righteousness from God, which is by faith, or righteousness of their own, which is presented before men? Jesus declares to them, your righteousness is one of seeking praise before men. And so we're going to look at two things. One, the piercing warning of the scribes in pretense. He declares they seek their righteousness from their garments, their greetings, and their grandeur. They seek to proclaim themselves righteous because of their garments, their greetings, and their grandeur. And Jesus says, beware of them because they lead in pretense. They talk right and they live wrong. He rebukes the scribes in Matthew. He declares them to those who are whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside but dead on the inside. They are full of hypocrisy. Though they appear righteousness, they are full of lawlessness. They are like a cup cleaned only on the outside, but filthy on the inside. They are those who seek to give appearance. And here we see in Mark, he says three things. I've categorized them in three ways. Starting at verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. What does this mean? They like to walk around in long robes. Uh, They they like to walk around in clothing that is not that of a laborer. Uh, They want to walk around in royal garments. They want to walk around in, in high dress. They want to declare that they are greater than others. And we see throughout Scripture, dress is communicated. Uh, There is no dress code assigned for Christians. Uh, There is nothing that you wear that makes clear you're a Christian. 
many Christians might choose to wear particular things, and that's fine, but we should choose to wear particular things based upon the principles and the declarations of Scripture, not in some pretense that it makes us look like something we're not. There are many declarations of dress in Scripture, and this declaration of dress is one of rebuke. It says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. What do they do? They love their dress. And, and literally, for them, it is a dress. We have different problems of men wearing dress these days. But in those days, they're doing it to declare their masculinity, their power, their authority. And so as they do so, we are warned, do not like to walk around in the clothes you have. This is not, a, this is, this is not the Christian nudist verse, right? See, we shouldn't walk around in clothes. No. No, we must dress. Uh, Noah is rebuked fairly strongly for being naked and not ashamed. Uh, but we must consider our dress. Because we're told here that in pretense, in hypocrisy, the Pharisees, the scribes, sought to find their righteousness in how they dressed. And they liked it. James 2, 1 through 9, tells us the value of dress is superficial. Particularly in, in regards to the church, we have direct instruction about how we should approach the dress of men and women. How should we approach that? James, 1, James 2, verse 1, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here at a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. And not, are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. What does he say? He says the value of a man who walks into the gathering is not valued based upon the clothes he wears. His holiness, his righteousness, his faithfulness to God, who he is, is not depicted by what he wears. He doesn't say you should treat the poor man better than the rich man. He says you should treat them as men. And he says, why do you give distinction to the rich man? Because his appearance in the world. And what do those who have that appearance, have the riches of the world do? They abuse their power. He says, if you're going to distinguish men how the world distinguishes them, do you not know that while the world casts out the poor, that Christ says they are rich in Him? And do you not know, as the world glorifies itself and magnifies itself with all its pomp and circumstance and pretense, that they are the ones that abuse others with their wealth and power and authority? He says, do you not see that both these men are your neighbors? And you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Not to love your neighbor by their appearance. The value of dress is superficial. Respectable apparel is defined. As you look at 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10, it says, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with the braiding of hair or gold, pearls, or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. 
The definition of respectable apparel is that which is modest and self-controlled, not costly. What, what, what does that mean? Well, that which is modest is that which does not draw attention to itself. I think we too often think of modesty as being, uh, I'm going to hide my body parts, right? And so we put the burden of modesty on just not displaying those parts which are not to be seen. But here, modesty is not talking about the hiding of body parts. It's talking about the presentation of clothing. And he says, we should wear clothing that is self-controlled, which would include the hiding of particular body parts. And we should also have that which is not costly, which is not the braiding of hair or ornate or trying to display something or uh, pearls or gold. And, and so what is the declaration? That women should not make themselves, they should not adorn themselves as something to be marveled at. God has already done that for you, right? Nobody, like a man walks into the room and everyone's like, oh, there's a dude. A lady can walk into the room and everyone goes, did you see that? Why? Because woman is the glory of man. She is made far more beautiful than he is. But the point here is that a woman should dress, and I would say it goes to all Christians, but it's particularly as women uh, historically and biologically are more prone to do this, because I think just because it's easier for them. It's a lot easier for a woman to look beautiful than it is for a man. We have that on display all over our society also. Not intending to say that, but there it is. But the same would be true for men. The scribes are rebuked because they dress to gain attention. And modesty is to dress in such a way that puts the attention elsewhere. Where? On what is godly. On what is holy. It should be modest and self-controlled for women who profess godliness. See, their clothing is not about what they are wearing as much as it is about what they are declaring. They're seeking to declare, look at God, look at God, look at God. Not, look at me, look at me, look at me. Adorning should not be external, but inward as the priority. Adorning is not about the external display, but is about the inward person. We see the same thing in 1 Peter verse 2. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty and a gentle and quiet spirit. Now many would take this and say, this, this only applies to women. Yes, here it does. But it is all Christians are called to be gentle and quiet. We're called to live peaceable lives, to be faithful, to seek to be modest, not to, again, draw attention to ourselves, not to let our adornment be that which is outward, which is perishing, but to be inward. Clothing should not be a matter of anxiety. Matthew 6, 25 through 33, Jesus speaks of clothing and he says particularly that clothing is to be worn uh, and it is to be trusted that God will provide it. You should not busy yourself in worrying about your clothing. Isn't that a breath of fresh air? Do you know how many mornings I wake up on a Sunday and I go, what shirt did I wear last week? I'm just telling you, honestly, I think like, I wish I had a picture. I don't want to wear the same shirt like three Sundays in a row. Why? Who cares? Because I'm concerned people will be like, does Jake have any other shirts? Why does he keep wearing Now you're going to be watching, so I'm going to make sure for the next few weeks because I don't want it to be a distraction. But it's the anxiety of man. We have so much to wear, so many outfits, so much clothes. There's some kind of expectation among us that you should almost never be caught in the same thing twice. That everyone should always be surprised by your wardrobe. That God forbid you would wear the same attire to every formal event you have. Right? There's a new formal event. I need a new dress. Not me. I don't wear dresses. He says, do not be anxious about your clothing. Your clothing is not to be a matter of anxiety. 
And here it is probably more directed as those who are fearful they will not have enough. It's not directed as people that have so much they're fearful someone might catch them wearing the same thing twice. Or that they might not have the right brand. But those who are worried that they will have enough. That their garments are literally fading. Right? To rejoice over clothing is not bad. I've been in many third world countries and people are given shoes and shirts and pants and they are rejoicing. Why? Because the shirt they have is falling apart. They need a new one. They could be anxious because their clothing is being destroyed, not because of what they're wearing. And that's Jesus' instruction. That don't have anxiety about what you wear. Why? Because God will care for you. Even the greatest provision God has given in Solomon and all his beauty displayed. He says the flowers of the field, all those flowers that currently in Menifee you know very well are perishing. Everything that was beautiful just a few weeks ago and God made all of that and he displayed all of that and just as quickly he is torching it. If he can do all of that, why are you anxious about just your outward appearance and your covering? Lastly, 1 Timothy 6, clothing is a matter of contentment, not display. 1 Timothy 6, 2 through 10. Those who have, uh, no, sorry, I'll start at verse 5. Uh, no, 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. He speaks of false teachers and those who teach falsely because they view godliness as some sort of gain that they're going to perform before men and gain something. In verse 6, he says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For if we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. What does he say? The standard of Christian contentment is food and clothing. And many say uh, that clothing is more of covering, and so it's food and shelter. Shelter for both your body and your body in a home. But the standard of Christian contentment is just for those things to be provided. And he says there is a warning that if we look at those things because we are wealthy and we can provide them in abundance, he doesn't say it's bad to have abundance, but he says the love for abundance, the love for riches, the love for wealth, a lack of contentment, but the unsustainable desire for more is the warning. If I cannot be satisfied, but I always need more, I always need new, I always need everything. He says, through these cravings, many have wandered from the faith because their hope is in appearance. So first, their garments they love to display who they are. They also love for others to notice it. Their greetings. Look with me again at verse 38. He says, And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. And, next statement, what else do they like? They like greetings in the marketplaces. They like to be greeted. They like it when someone walks up and notices them. They like it when their dress gives them, oh, well, hello there, Rabbi. Let me bring you to the front of the line. They love to be those who are greeted. Well, what is the biblical principle of greeting? Can I, can I just give it to you briefly and shortly? Be the one who looks to greet others, not the one who looks to be greeted. Here's where I think we fall short in this. Many of us will say, no, nobody greeted me. Nobody came to me. Nobody approached me. Nobody was pleasing to me. Right? What are you looking for? You're looking to be greeted. You're looking for someone to notice you. Now, Christian, what is your purpose in life? 
to make Christ known, to make him noticed. Now, a major benefit to this is if we were all looking to those who are greeting, what would happen? Nobody would ever feel like I wasn't greeted because we would all be looking for opportunity to greet. We would all be looking for opportunity to exalt others. The problem with the scribes are they're not looking to exalt others. They go to the marketplace and they walk around the marketplace looking for others to exalt them. They're looking for others to put them in position. Matthew 5, 47, Jesus addresses this very issue of greeting, but he addresses it from the positive aspect. Christian, how should you approach greeting? How should you approach being the one who welcomes others? How should you approach seeing someone and wanting them to feel encouraged, exalted, uplifted? How should you approach that? Matthew 5, 4, uh, 547 says, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? But all men is your neighbor, and you should greet them. He says, if you only find those who are your friends, those who are your family, those who dress the same as you, fit the same culture as you, and you welcome them, you're looking out for them in the marketplace? Whoa, there's one of my people. And you welcome them? He says, how, how are you not like everyone else? But Christian, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You should greet them. You should be looking to greet everyone. I listed a whole bunch of verses there in the epistles that emphasize the greeting of one another. Because some of us, uh, myself included, can take greeting as just kind of a pleasantry, like an unnecessary, like, oh, I have to do this type thing. And so you walk into a room, right? Some people walk into a room and walk out of a room. I've got to greet every person here, right? You hate to leave anywhere with those people because you're like, hey, we got to be somewhere at two o'clock. So right now it's 1130. Could you start saying goodbye to people? Because we got to leave in two and a half hours or an hour and a half. I'm not good at math. They need to get to everyone. But isn't that so much kinder than the person that just goes, uh, <laughs> you say this to Lauren all the time. Uh, nobody cares that I was leaving. I don't have to go around and tell everybody. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about them. So why not tell them you're thankful for them? Why not take opportunity to encourage them, to uplift them? Why make the greeting about you? Why not make it about them? And, and this is a biblical principle we see throughout the epistles, the greeting of others. Paul doesn't write and say, oh, how come you don't greet me? And how come you don't serve me? And how come you don't do this for me? What does Paul do? He writes, if you read Romans 16, he lists name after name after name. Greet them, encourage them, tell them, I'm thankful for them. And all of those epistles that I listed, Peter does it, John does it, Paul does it. They all seek to greet those. And John specifically in 3 John 15, he says, peace be with you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Hmm. So it appears John was the dude that goes, I got to say goodbye to everybody, each by name, to care for them, to love them. Not just a general, not just a pleasantry of tell everybody I love them. He says, greet them each by name. What's the difference between the scribes and this kind of greeting that is prescribed? The priority of greeting in the New Testament, again, is not to find pleasure in being greeted in being esteemed, in being noticed. We should be those who seek to esteem others higher than ourselves, those who are ready to greet and welcome one another and others, not looking to be made much of, but looking how to make much of others. It assumes our interest in them. It's not a general greeting, but taking time to greet them. I think this is so needful for Christians. Because many of us who are strong in this area, do you know what we often do? We take our strength and we make it a weakness. So instead of using our strength, if you are the person who is prone to go, how come people aren't welcoming? How come they're not greeting? How come they're not here for me? Do you know what you should do, Christian? Use your strength. Be the one that displays that. Be the one that teaches other people how to be welcoming. Be the one that welcomes so much and is so gracious and so hospitable that people say, man, I want to be like that. 
And do it not for yourself to be exalted, but why? Because God has gifted you intentionally in faithfulness that encourages the body. Use your gifts as all gifts are commanded in 1 Peter to lift up one another. Where the scribes did the exact opposite. The warning is they loved to be greeted, not greeting. Lastly, from grandeur. They want to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. It's not just a greater garment or a market greeting, but they want public esteem. They want to be those who are exalted. Jesus speaks frankly to them. He says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. They want to be recognized rather than wanting God to be recognized. They live for their own righteousness. They live to show themselves faithful. They live to be esteemed above others. They live for what we looked at just last week in Romans 2. To judge the world by their own faithfulness. Their grandeur. Their display. I I just thought of it. I, I didn't put it in my notes, but there is a proverb somewhere. If the author of Hebrews can say somewhere it's said, I guess I can too. Somewhere in the Proverbs it says, A foolish man seeks to exalt himself, but a wise man is praised by others. And it would be the same. Should we refuse and should we deny when others honor us? No, allow them to honor you. I think we have flipped this so much in our culture. We fail to encourage one another. Why? Because I don't want to puff them up. That's not God's warning to you. God's warning to you is not, don't encourage others because they will become prideful. His warning to you is, don't seek to live by the praise of others or you will become prideful. His instruction to you is, greet one another, welcome one another, encourage one another, press one another forward all the more as you see the day drawing near. People need encouragement. You need to be concerned about your pride. And you need to be concerned about the perseverance of others. So how do you do so? You don't worry about your presentation and what you're wearing. You worry about how quickly you can encourage others that they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You don't worry about your greeting and if anyone's exalting you and praising you. You worry about the greeting of others that they might exalt Christ and praise Him. And you don't worry if anyone is giving you the place of honor and esteem. You seek to put others in a place of honor and esteem because you know they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can hear these warnings of the scribes and become like the scribes in seeking to condemn others rather than to exalt others because of Christ. To love them, to care for them, to honor them. We could seek to live in pretense rather than in truth. The scribes are warned not only of the pretense of their uh, appearances, but also the works of the scribes. Look with me at the last verse, verse 40. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. I put just a list of verses, if you wanted to look further, of false teachers and their actions. There's a list of verses there you could look at. What you'll find in those verses is again and again, it is declared that they are those who say one thing and do another. They are those who prey on the weak. They are those who take those that are burdened by sin and they use them for their own pleasure, for their own gain. That false teachers are those who don't care for the weak, but abuse them. Or as Jesus says here, that they devour widows' houses. They take those who are left uncared for, unprotected, and they use their words, they use their dress, they use the greetings, they use the grandeur to use those people for themselves. Rather than to declare the holiness of Christ, they declare their own holiness. And the scribes were guilty as the rest. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. 
Matthew 6, 1 through 8, on your handout, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Jesus says, do not let your religious acts be done to be seen by men, but do it for him. That doesn't mean you don't consider others when you pray. In John 17, we see Jesus praying, and even in his prayer, he says, I say this not because you do not know God, but for those who hear me. Right? So it doesn't mean we never pray publicly, but it means we don't pray just to be public. He says, for pretense, to make a false appearance, they pray in public. They pray on street quarters. In Matthew, he goes on to say they they fast, and rather than trying to kind of do themselves up so that people don't notice they're fasting, they they do themselves down. Right? It's the person that walks into the room like, oh, it's just such a hard day. Why is it hard? I'm just fasting for the Lord. (sighs) Such a burden. Such a burden to be holy. No. He's saying those who are fasting appear as though you aren't fasting. Let your hope be in Christ. Do those things for the glory of Christ. Don't do your righteousness and your righteous deeds hoping someone else will notice you. Don't live to be noticed. Live to make Christ exalted. Why? Because in doing so, in living for the exalting of you, you are declaring, I can be righteous in and of myself. I should be praised. I should be made much of. I am super great. I'm the person that should be exalted. And in doing so, in the knowledge of who they are, because the scribes are those who look at the Word of God, they know the truth of the Word of God, they look to the law, they seek to magnify their works and their righteousness and say, look at the law and look at me, I'm the perfect scribe. I do all the right things. And God says their condemnation will be greater. Why? Because they lie about the truth. They do not exalt in the death of Christ because they hope that Christ would pay for their sins. They exalt here in the death of Christ because they hope the magnifying beauty of Christ that is on display between all people, as Mark says, and they heard him gladly. What is the scribe sitting there thinking? I need this man to save me? No. He's thinking, if Christ is here, we don't look righteous anymore. If Christ stands before the people, it is clear that we are a fake and a sham, that everything we do is in pretense. If we do not kill Christ, everyone will know that He is good and holy and right. And so they sought to kill Him. Little did they know. And I hope they came to understand. It was only in the death of Christ that they could be exalted. Only in the death of Christ they could be declared righteous only in the death of Christ that their pretense could be confessed because their perfect Savior was crucified and they would be proclaimed as His. I know many of you lead in in our church and in your families and at work. And I would encourage you to take time this week to look at 1 Peter 5. As the scribes are rebuked for their pretense in leadership, Peter exalts the leaders of churches, and in the same way all of us, to be humble in leadership, not serving under compulsion or by force or by the will of others, but willingly by your own choice. Not for shameful gain, not because what you can earn, not because what you will get, but eagerly for the glory of Christ and to serve others. Not domineering, not demanding, not about your way, but as an example of one who lives for the way of Christ. And for the reward that when your chief shepherd appears, when he who has defeated sin comes to finish the last enemy death, 
And when he appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. And likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Because the proud declare, look at me, I can do it. And the humble declare, look to Christ, it is only through him. Let's pray that God would have such grace to let us hear the truth of Christ exalted and the warning of the scribes who seek to exalt themselves, that we might live not to make ourselves known, but to make him known.